Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. John, the first chapter, the 35th to the 42nd verse. In this Gospel, it's going to be about discipleship. It's going to be about vocation, about calling. And it has a lot of elements in it that remind us, for instance, of the reading from the first book of Samuel, where Samuel is sleeping, and he hears his name called, and he gets up, and he thinks that it is, in fact, Eli who is uh, calling him. So he goes to him several times, and finally Eli tells him, go and lie down, and if someone calls you, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood by, and uh, Samuel, Samuel, and he said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. There is this idea of vocation that goes all the way through the Old Testament and in through the New Testament. And what we're dealing with then in this gospel in the first chapter of John is the vocation, the vocation of at least three of disciples by name, Andrew and Peter, and by presumption, John himself, who is writing this particular narrative. It places John the Baptist in the desert just briefly before this gospel begins, which means that he's outside of Jericho in the neighborhood of Qumran, and that uh, it appears to be where John has done the majority of his ministry, which lends us to be able to say that there is a great deal of connection between the proclamation of the Baptist and the Essene community at Qumran. And there's something significant about this connection, not besides just perhaps historical interest. And that is that we've talked before so often about the idea of the recognition of the Lord as being the prerequisite for that usually is a deep embeddedness in the faith tradition of the covenant, whether that be in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. We know, for instance, that in the story of Samuel, his mother conceived and bore him in, in advanced years, and she offered him to the Lord, and he spent his life in the service of the Lord, but first of all in the service of Eli. And then the Lord calls him to his particular prophetic service. Here we have the disciples who are with John the Baptist in the desert. And so while Samuel served Eli, Peter, Andrew, and we're going to presume John, were disciples of the Baptist. And they were also in this area, probably seeking out the Baptist, someone who was deeply embedded and imbued with the prophecies of the Old, of the Old Testament and with the traditions in the depths of the covenant. So that as John stood with two of his disciples, Jesus passed and John stared hard at him and said, look, there is the Lamb of God. So what does this mean, the Lamb of God? The question arises, I guess is better to say, is it therefore John who understands the sacrificial nature of the Messiah's life, compares him with the sacrificial lamb of the Pasch? Is that what's, what's going on? But the same expression besides Lamb of God also means servant of God. And so the servant of God is an Old Testament reference, and the Old Testament reference um, has a great deal to do with the anointed one, with the Messiah. 
So it may well be that John is simply saying, there is the anointed one, there is the one whom the Lord has sent. But it is legitimate to speculate also on, this, on the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God certainly would have some kind of uh, prescient knowledge of the sacrificial nature of the messianic life. And actually, this was a slight component of the Qumran theology, of the Essene theology, that in, in there looking for the teacher of righteousness, um, figuring he may have been one who was sacrificed, one who was killed or who would be killed. And so for, for being, actually, for teaching the righteousness of the Lord. So there's all sorts of subtleties in, in, in all of this. And we're free to say, behold, the Lamb of God, as this particular translation of the gospel does, or to say, the, the servant of God, as is also a legitimate interpretation. Then what we have is John in the desert, having been prepared for the recognition of the Messiah through being deeply embedded in the prophetic tradition of the, of the covenant, and himself, we know, being the last of the prophets. And I think that we've mentioned this before, but it's an important thing. Prophecy can refer to future events. Its definition is not looking into the future. Its definition is proclaiming the, with authority the word of God. This is why in the gospel when they say, you know, he speaks with authority, not like the scribes, they're attributing a prophetic quality to Jesus when they say that. And, uh, and it causes astonishment, not because his arguments or not because what he says is so different from the bickering of the scribes, but it's because that he is speaking authentically. So they could say authoritatively or authentically the word of God. So John is speaking authentically the word of God when he says, behold, there is the Lamb of God, there is the servant of God. Hearing this, the two disciples, Peter, or Andrew, and presumably John, followed Jesus. And Jesus turned around, saw them following, and said to them, what do you want? And they answered, Rabbi. They called him teacher, the normal term of respect for one who is a master, who is a teacher, which means teacher, the gospel says, where do you live? And Jesus said to them, come and see. He replied, so they went and saw where he lived and stayed with him the rest of that day, and it was about the 10th hour. What happens is that they, being in some way connected to John the Baptist, trust his word when he says, there is a servant of God, there is the Lamb of God. And so they go up to Jesus and they, and they say to him, where do you live? In other words, where are you situated? And instead of saying, well, it's such and such a place, Jesus says, why don't you come and see? And so they follow him, come and see, and they follow him. And they stay with him then the rest of that day. And it was about the 10th hour. So the call to them is simple, come and see. I think a vocational call within the contemporary church is the same. I wonder what it's like, the young person, Mike asked. And Christ's answer to them always is come and see. See what it means to move more deeply into discipleship. See what it means to move more deeply into a relationship with the living God, with the Messiah. Now, one of these two who became followers of Jesus after hearing what John had to say about him 
was Andrew. So that's, that's interesting. John is the one that points the way. He is the prophetic figure, but he is the one who says, behold, there. This, as Christians, is, as Catholics, is all of our task. All of our task is to direct and to point those who are seeking in the direction that we feel believed deeply that the Lord is moving them and say to them, why don't you go and see where the Lord is inviting you? Why don't you go and explore? A lot of hesitancy about vocation in the contemporary world, more so, I suppose, than there used to be. I don't know. There is skittishness about it in a lot of ways. After the sexual revolution of the 60s, the whole idea of living without actively employing our sexuality is something that, that seems to be uh, unthinkable in, in the modern, in a modern age that is filled basically with promiscuity and pornography. The other thing about, you know, as smaller families, people will say, well, no, I, I don't want them to, I want, the, I want grandchildren. Well, it's not, it's, <laughs> it's their life, actually. And it's between them and the Lord. And what you want, you want. And if the Lord wants you to have that, you will have it. And if it's, if it's part of the sacrificial nature of your life, then you will experience it as such. Um, I think also there is the whole idea of the fear of the scandals that have ravaged the clergy for the last 25 years. You know, what will my son or my daughter become entangled in? And then I think there is also the, the whole idea, won't they be terribly lonely without a husband or a wife? That is a concern. We can look at that as the time goes on because basically it's, not, it's an unrealistic concern, in all honesty, if a person lives their vocation as they should. And by vocation, I don't only mean religious vocation, except here, that's what it specifies those who are going to be apostles of the Lord, those who are going to live their lives exclusively for Jesus Christ, and even those who were married, being either widowed, seemed to, in some way, shape, or form, give their life completely to their mission to the Lord. Their families are never mentioned and never part of the story. And so they, it can't be simply a very significant part of their public life once they decide to follow Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't know. It doesn't mean they're irresponsible. It doesn't mean that they're abandoned. It doesn't, we don't know what it means. But what we do know is that those who were became exclusive disciples of the Lord. So basically, we're talking in a sense about religious vocations, as we were when we mentioned the story from the first book of Samuel. Samuel becomes the prophet. And uh, he is the one who has removed himself from his parents and his family to be exclusively available to the Lord. We go on. One of these two who became followers of Jesus after hearing what John had said was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. So early the next morning, obviously, the disciples had uh, stayed with the Lord. Early the next morning, Andrew met his brother and said to him, We have found the Messiah. They have gone now from calling him rabbi, which means teacher, to then Andrew identifying him to Peter as Messiah, which means the Christ. And he took Simon to Jesus. So he finds his brother, 
And he says, we found the Messiah. Obviously, Peter is part of the group also who are in some form of discipleship relationship with the Baptist. Peter then follows Andrew and he goes, he goes to Christ. And Jesus looks intently at him and says, you are Simon, son of John. So he's not been formally introduced to him, but he recognizes him, whether he has known him before or whether he has recognizes him simply because he is the Lord. We don't know. But what he does do, and he said, you are Simon, son of John. You are Simon Barjona. You are to be called Kephas, meaning rock. And so instantaneously, the Lord identifies the mission of Peter. We know that this mission of Peter that, that, that John is, is, first of all, we meet it most, most immediately and powerfully in Matthew 16, 18 in Peter's confession, when after his confession, Jesus calls him Peter. There's no, there's no harmonization between the Gospel of John and the Synoptic Gospels on, these, on this kind of particular issue or even the place and the time. But we have to remember that probably when it comes to the historicity of the gospel, probably John is more accurate than the others. First of all, Luke is a disciple of St. Paul. He is, he is not in the entourage of Jesus. Mark is not necessarily in the entourage of Jesus, although we might find him um, tangentially related to the Lord as, as John Mark. And Matthew, who is one of the crowd, nevertheless has an intense mission, an intense mission to catechize um, the community of Jerusalem and to catechize, therefore, particularly the Jewish people. And in so doing, then, he constructs his narrative in such a way that it becomes more compelling. In those days, to tell a narrative was not... You had to look at what were they trying to communicate, because in that is the absolute accuracy of oral tradition. Facts like newspaper reporter facts. Of course, we don't have many newspaper reporter facts anymore. But when newspapers did report the facts, many people were looking into the Gospels for that same kind of accuracy. For instance, critical history, in other words. It wasn't there, and it was, it was complicated for them. What we have to realize is the meaning of the kerygma, the meaning of the proclamation of the evangelists and the apostles, is to proclaim the faith, to proclaim what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. They were less concerned about the historical circumstances and more concerned about the kerygma, the heart of the message, the meaning, the purpose, and so forth. So if there is deviation, it isn't like, you know, they're making it up from scratch. It's like, first of all, some know it very intimately. Some know it at a greater distance. Some are emphasizing this part of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And others know that their audience needs another dimension, another perspective on the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And so they construct their kerygma accordingly. With all that being said, the commentators seem to say that John might be the historically more accurate one if we're, that's what we're looking for is historical accuracy. John and Andrew and Peter become the three who are then in the desert with the Baptist who f encounter the Lord and who follow the Lord. And then 
Jesus uses that occasion without the complicity of Peter actually in the confession of who the Messiah is. And he appoints him, he says to him, you are Kephas, you are Petrus, you are rock, meaning foundation. And so it is from the very beginning that Peter becomes the, pri the, the, the primatial apostle, that Peter becomes the rock upon which the apostles are to be founded. And we know that in his ultimate and great humanity, that Peter is not the most solid of rocks at all times, just as we know in the papacy, the, descend the, uh, the followers the, of, of St. Peter on the throne of Peter in Rome have not always been the strongest of foundations, the strongest of leaders. But underlying it all is the promise of the Lord, and underlying it all is the vocation of the successor of Peter, to be a foundation. If they fail, if they are weak, if they fail, then the church, of course, suffers from the failure of the leaders. This is a constant theme in the development of priesthood in the Old Testament. There's an excellent book by um, Anthony Giambroni, a Dominican who teaches at the Ecole Biblique in Jerusalem called The Priesthood in the Bible showing the impact, the mutual impact. The sins of the priests usually are reflective of the sins of the people, and the sins of the people impact the sins of the priest. There is a symbiotic relationship between both goodness and evil, between the priests and the people. This is a constant theme in the Old Testament. The priest's life and sacrifices are supposed to be for the forgiveness, for the, re for the uh, reparation for sin and yet they themselves oftentimes get dragged into the quagmire. And oftentimes they are the ones who drag the people into the quagmire. So, so that kind of, that's an Old Testament theme that we can see um, actually moves, uh, moves into the New Testament as well. We see the absolute betrayal of Judas. And although that was awful, the worst part of Judas's betrayal was he despaired, is that he lost hope that God could love him, that God could save him, that God could forgive him. And yet the Lord was to forgive Peter, and he was to forgive the other apostles for denying him, for turning against him in the courtyards outside the Praetorium, and so forth. So Judas took his own life because he did not trust Jesus Christ. And the others repented because they did. So we have also then a son, those closest to the Lord, those engaged in the discipleship in the, apostles, in, the, in the mission of the apostles, can oftentimes be weak and fragile men, and yet at the same time may never lose hope in God's love for them and never lose trust in his willingness to forgive them if they but repent um, and turn away from their sins. And that in so doing, they also are part of the healing reality of the community, which also is steeped in sin. And the priest being forgiven and the priest therefore trusting and honoring the Lord Jesus can draw also the faithful with him into a, into a reconciliation and into a reparation for their sins with the Lord. It's obvious among the twelve. This is clear among the twelve. Peter becomes the rock, the foundation, and he, in this gospel then, according to the calling of the three apostles, Peter then emerges as we are to know him then throughout the rest of the Old Testament and to know him throughout the rest of the life of the church as the rock, the foundation, oftentimes weak 
and yet nevertheless able to be forgiven, able to make amends for their sins, able to lead the people to Christ, and able themselves to be forgiven and to be redeemed in their weakness. Jesus did not create a group of supermen. He created a group who represent the human condition, that in every way we don't know the personal moralities of their lives except in the case of Judas. And we know that he was greedy and we know that he was a thief and that he stole money from, from the common purse that was there to give basically for the livelihood of his brothers and for alms to the poor. So we know that it morally at least he was dishonest and he was a thief. That much we know about him. We also know probably it is worse publicly to deny Jesus Christ than it is to steal from the community. I don't know how you evaluate the relative weight of, of those two crimes, really. But certainly to deny the Lord Jesus Christ is a very serious crime. And that's one that was committed three times by Peter. And yet the Lord loved him and the Lord forgave him. And he went on to become a great leader and a great missionary and uh, a great figure and, and stable figure, a rock within the whole tradition, within the whole story of the existence of the people of God, the church, together with the Lord. We from this should take courage. On the other hand, we started out talking about vocation, talking about Samuel's vocation, talking about the vocation now of the three disciples who become the three apostles, John and Andrew and Peter. We know that, for instance, that vocation, the specific call to specific service to the Lord, is something that is very critical, very crucial throughout every age of the church, in every time and in every place. It certainly is a critical element in today's world as we see a backing off from a response to the call of the Lord. There is no doubt but what the Lord continues to call as he has always continued to call. But there is also no doubt that there might be in this day and age for a variety of reasons a greater hesitation to respond. And all I think that we can say about that is that we have to remember the difference between the sins and the weaknesses of Peter and the sins and the weaknesses of Judas Iscariot. For Peter continued to love, continued to trust, and all ended up well. He ended up actually giving his life for the Lord in a heroic martyrdom which brought him into the kingdom of heaven. Judas, on the other hand, despaired of the Lord's love, despaired of the Lord's mercy, despaired of forgiveness, and then self-destructed, took his own life. We know that in following the Lord, we are not made supermen or superwomen or wonder women or anything like that, that we remain our very human selves hopefully growing in wisdom, hopefully growing in knowledge, hopefully growing in grace, hopefully growing in a depth of understanding of ourselves, of the mission that we're on, that even when, in fact, any of us become weak, any of us fall, we must immediately repent, immediately make reparation to the Lord, and immediately continue the journey with a greater understanding and a greater love for the weaknesses of the people with whom we travel this road. The vocation to the priesthood and religious life is not something to be afraid of. It is something to cherish and something because, very honestly, when lived fully as the Lord gives us the grace to live it, it enhances and deepens our humanity.
and in so doing makes us more aware not only of who we are as persons, but who others are as persons as well, and allows us to share then the love, the mercy, the forgiveness, the care that the Lord has shown to us. It is a mission of mercy, and it is a mission of salvation to which the Lord calls us, not only our own, but all of those to whom we are sent. And it is then as a community that we experience the differences among us and yet at the same time know, appreciate, and love each person for whom they are, where they are walking, and what stage of life they are in. We support anything that the Lord asks of us and anything that the Lord asks of others. And so in this particular gospel, let us reflect and pray over this idea of vocation and let us ask the Lord to call many and to enable them in grace and the support of the community to respond to his call with generosity, with care, with love, with humility, and with self-surrender. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.